Now, shall we read together the passage that we're going to look at this evening in Mark chapter 15, commencing at verse 16. Mark chapter 15, commencing at verse 16. I'm going to read tonight uh, this passage from the New American uh, Bible, New American Standard Bible. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. And they dressed him up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a staff, and spitting at him, and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, and put his garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, that he might bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was reckoned with transgressors. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests along with the scribes were also mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is being in, translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus <coughs> uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two 
from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Well, now, this evening, if you will turn to this passage in the 15th chapter of Mark, from verse 16, we shall commence to look at um, it more closely. Um, I have, in fact, as you know, divided this, uh, uh, this uh, last subdivision of this third major division of Mark into two, his crucifixion and his burial. And what I've done is I've also re divided further this uh, section, his crucifixion, into three. The crown of thorns, <coughs> verses 16 to 20. The crucifixion, uh, verses 21 uh, to 32. The work finished, verses 33 to 41. Now, I don't think this evening that we shall get beyond verse 32. So we shall take the first of those two um, passages uh, this evening and look at them. So if you will turn straight away to Mark 15 and verse 16 to 20, I have entitled this section, The Crown of Thorns. Both uh, Mark and Matthew record the soldier's brutal mockery of Christ as the link between the trial before Pilate and the crucifixion. John uh, informs us that, in fact, this incident recorded here in these uh, four verses, from verse 16 to 20, uh, took place before the final pronouncement of the death sentence. In fact, John infers, uh, by the way he records uh, this incident, that Pilate had hoped that the scourging of Christ, the indignities that were heaped upon him, the derision uh, with which he was uh, held up before the crowds would have satisfied the hatred of the Jewish establishment and excited some kind of pity on the part of the crowd. You will remember, if you turn to John 19, verses 4 and 5, that um, he actually brings out the Lord Jesus with those famous words, Behold the man. And Jesus, John says, came out wearing the crown of thorn and dressed in the purple robe. But um, uh, I... Pilate's wish, Pilate's hope was not uh, satisfied. The scourging of Christ, uh, the indignities heaped upon him, did not satisfy the hatred of the temple authorities, and it did not excite uh, any widespread sympathy in the crowd. All three gospel accounts end with Christ being led away to be crucified. We have it, of course, here in Mark 15, verse 20, last phrase, and they led him out to crucify him. It is a terrible picture of human callousness and blindness which we see in these verses. Christ had just been scourged, a flogging, 
a whipping which often proved fatal in itself. Many a man, uh, it is on record, died before ever he got to the place of execution. Now the soldiers who had been guarding him and who had been responsible for administering the scourging, the flogging, uh, um, take him into the uh, inner court of the praetorium, the inner courtyard of the governor's residence, and call together the whole battalion. Now, if you look at verse uh, 16, there are two points I'd like just you to note. First of all, it says, inside the palace, that is the praetorium. It's a rather strange way of putting it. Really, it is in, into the court. Uh, that is the praetorium. And from that we can only understand that what uh, Mark meant was that the soldiers took Jesus into the inner courtyard of the governor's residence. Um, it's interesting, the New, the New English Bible, the NEB, uh, puts it into the governor's headquarters, which is probably the simplest way out of the problem. And the second uh, point to note is the whole band that's how it's put in the authorized version and the revised version, battalion, the whole battalion in the revised standard version. Literally, it is a cohort. Uh, now, this would have been the whole detachment on garrison duty in Jerusalem, numbering some hundreds of men. An actual cohort numbered uh, officially a thousand, uh, but generally about 480. Uh, men. Um, it's not necessary to believe that they were in full strength, but there were obviously some hundreds of men uh, in this battalion. And it would appear that it was a kind of sports hour that was suddenly given to the men, a kind of games hour, if you like, uh, almost a recreation hour uh, that was given to them uh, um, at this point. It is interesting the way it is put, and they call together the whole battalion. Evidently, the officers uh, did it, brought together the men for uh, this uh, time. These soldiers were hardened, long-service regulars. They were not Jewish. Uh, all they knew was that the prisoner claimed to be yet another Jewish messiah and royal pretender from which Judah was always suffering. Uh, the history of Judea in New Testament times was a history of so-called messiahs. And one of the problems that the Roman authorities had was the excitement which these uh, different uh, messiahs and royal pretenders caused amongst the people. Now, we can't go into all that, but there are a number of uh, incidents recorded by Josephus and by other historians um, when uh, much trouble came. Um, so, as far as these hardened uh, regulars in the Roman army were concerned, uh, Jesus was just another uh, Jewish, so-called Jewish Messiah, another one of these royal pretenders. For them, therefore, he was legitimate sport, and they made the most of their opportunity. They showed neither kindness nor pity. He became the focal point of their games, the object of of ribald, jesting, and cruel fun, 
the object of coarse horseplay. Uh, they covered his naked body, badly bruised, puffed up face, bleeding, with a crimson military cloak, uh, uh, twisted some thorns into a wreath, a crown, and put it on his head, put a strong stout cane into his hand and began to do mock homage to him. It was all great fun for them. That day, Jesus became the outlet for all their frustrations, all their inhibitions, all their bitterness. They took it out on Christ, on this Jewish Messiah, this King of the Jews. All their pent-up irritations at being on military service in Judea. Now, anyone who's been in the services, especially abroad, will know exactly what, what I'm talking about. That kind of irritation that builds up when you're on garrison duty in a foreign country and you're fed up to the back teeth with the local inhabitants, especially uh, when they appear to you to be stupid, dim-witted, and very volatile. Oh, I've seen it, I'm afraid. I won't say where, um, but I've seen it with my own eyes, the kind of thing that used to happen. And these uh, soldiers, uh, all this bitterness about being regulars, being trapped in the army, the military discipline and everything else, um, all found its outlet uh, upon Christ. He was fair game. They kept on striking his head with the cane, repeatedly spitting on him, uh, uh, alternating their mock homage with violence. The scene is a terrible scene. It is one, first of all, of a man who's badly beaten and ill-treated, being just dressed up, and then they mocked him, saluted him, hail king of the Jews, went down on their knee before him, and then tripped him, or hit him, or spat on him into his eye, into his mouth, and then laughed, and then went it again, did it again, did it again. It was all great fun for them. The whole, uh, re the, the, the whole scene, the whole atmosphere is one of coarseness and evil. Now, there are one or two things about these verses which we ought to look at unpleasant uh, as uh, the subject is. Uh, first of all, um, in these verses 17 to 19, um, in verse 17 we have the word purple. In the authorized version, um, in the Revised Standard Version, purple cloak. You will see it says in the Revised Standard Version, uh, they clothed him in a purple uh, cloak. Actually, in the original, the word cloak is not there. It has been added in the Revised Standard Version in the light of John chapter 19 and verse 2, and Matthew 27 and verse 28, where it definitely says that it was a purple cloak uh, that was put on. He wasn't just dressed up in purple, it was a purple cloak. Um, it was the military cloak uh, that was fastened at the shoulder by one clasp, and it was probably the officer's uh, cloak. Actually, both the men and the officers wore the same color. Uh, the only difference was in the fineness of the material. Purple is a term covering all shades from uh, rose to crimson to purple. 
Uh, the reason was that the ancients weren't very bothered about um, the different shades uh, in colour. And that's why, for instance, crimson and scarlet are often mixed up anyway. They're almost synonymous uh, in uh, the Bible. But it was all shades from rose to crimson to purple. Now, that's why Matthew uh, 27 and verse 28 tells us that it was a scarlet robe uh, that was put on him, whereas John and Mark say that it was purple. It is a color range, uh, whether it's scarlet, crimson, um, or purple, which has, all, which has always been associated with royalty. Mark does not mention the reed being placed in Christ's hand, only that they struck him with, uh, struck his head uh, with a reed. In verse 19, it says, and they struck his head with a reed. They kept on striking his head with a reed. Matthew gives us the fuller information. In Matthew 27, verses 29, they plaited a crown of thorns and put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. Mark only tells us that they took a reed. Rather interesting um, uh, fact of the, the authenticity, really, of the Gospels. Uh, if there'd been any real desire to hoodwink people, uh, perhaps the Markan author would have deliberately seen to it that uh, the other little point was put in. It's rather an interesting little point, just as an aside. Now, this reed is not the reed that most people in this country imagine. Uh, most of us imagine a reed to be something willowy and something rather light. But this was the very uh, large, giant type of reed which grows in the Middle East and which is really something more like a, a, a stout rod or, or staff. Um, when it's hardened, it's almost like a kind of bamboo. Um, uh, so it was no light taps that the Lord uh, received. Uh, these were, um, this was a, some uh, strong and stout uh, cane. Um, and then another point in verse 19. All the tenses in this verse are in the imperfect. They kept on striking him. They kept on spitting upon him. They kept on kneeling down in homage to him. It wasn't just that it all happened uh, in one little incident and was over. Uh, they kept on doing it. We don't know for how long. Uh, but there was a, an endless round of game and fun and horse play. It's a sad fact, worthy of note, that this is the only occasion in the whole Bible where Christ was ever crowned by man. The only crown this fallen world gave to Christ was a crown of thorns. But he turned that crown of thorns into a crown of transcendent glory. The old divines used to say uh, uh, that this crown of thorns was the symbol of the curse. You will remember if you turn back to Genesis and uh, chapter uh, 3 and verse 18, we read, thorns also and thistles 
shall it bring forth to thee. That was the result of the curse. The old divine saw in this crown of thorns put upon the head of the Lord Jesus the symbol of the curse. He became a curse for us. Galatians uh, says, chapter 3, verse 13. And by becoming a curse for us, Jesus removed the curse from us. And the fire of God can burn forever in the thorn bush. It is perhaps fanciful in one way, but I don't know whether it really is, to see in all these connections uh, with the thorn something of the uh, something of it anyway in the crown we who were fallen sinners saved <coughs> by his grace can become as it were eternal fuel for eternal fire those soldiers did not know what they were doing their homage their worship was a charade a mockery but heaven at that very moment bowed low in genuine worship. Surrounded as Christ was by callousness, by blindness, by coarseness, by hardened sin and wickedness, by evil and demon-possessed humanity, we hear from him no word of complaint, not a single murmur, no railing, no Anger, no condemnation of them all, no cry of self-pity. He endures all that he might lay down his life even for those worthless sinners. Did in fact one of those soldiers become a child of God? Verse 39 says about the centurion that when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he thus breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God, or as it can be also translated, a son of God. Uh, what he understood was this, that this was no ordinary mortal who had died. Now, tradition, of course, uh, tells us that this man's name was Longinus and that he became a Christian in the end. So it'd be interesting, really, if, uh, as a result, I can't help but believe that somehow many of those who were uh, involved in all this terrible business uh, around Christ finally came to him. Uh, anyway, we shall know one day when we're in the glory. Uh, what we can say is this, we see in Christ once more a kind of service forever beyond us naturally. It does not depend upon pleasant and sympathetic circumstances, upon congenial company, upon encouragement from supporters, uh, upon outward position, title, and show, but upon inward character and upon spiritual resources. Even when divested of all dignity, ridiculed, humiliated, derided, we see in Christ a majesty, a dignity, a grace, 
a beauty, a glory, which can do no other than reign. Indeed, they stripped him of every single thing upon which you and I, upon which this world depends in order to serve. They destroyed all those things upon which fallen man relies for dignity and authority. Yet, when they had done all, he was uncompromised. Not in thought, let alone action, had he compromised himself. He was uncompromised. They could not destroy his heart. They could not strip him of his character. This was beyond their power to do. Indeed, they could only enhance it by all their cruelty. And that's exactly really what happens in this incident. It is, in many ways, the most wonderful setting forth of the kind of character which alone can come to the throne of God uh, that we have in uh, the Bible. The crown of thorn. Uh, a crown of thorns then becomes uh, the most precious and the most glorious of all crowns in time and in eternity. To put on Christ some precious crown such as we have uh, in the Tower of London may appear to some to be glorious, but any kind of character can wear that crown as we have known in our history but that crown of thorns was worn by superlative character tested and tried to the utmost degree and therefore that crown I say is the most precious and the most glorious of all crowns which our Lord Jesus will ever wear. Here then, I think, we see the character which has come to reign forever from the throne of God. It is no mistake that Mark, with his emphasis upon Christ as the servant of the Lord, follows Matthew with his emphasis upon Christ as the king. For I think here it is royal service that we see. The, um, the priest, the prophet, and the king have come together. You will know, of course, those of you who know your Bible, that the one thing that you had to keep apart was the priest and the king. A king was never allowed to be a priest, and a priest was never allowed to be a king. But here we see these two wonderful things brought together, king and priest and prophet, all together. Royal service. And surely it's, it's divine irony that all the way through these verses, from 16 right through to verse 32, we have the mockery of his kingship. Hail, king of the Jews. They dressed him up as a king. 
If thou art the king, come down from the cross. The accusation written above his head, the king of the Jew. I say that's divine irony because it is just here where Jesus' kingship is most marked that he proves himself to be the king of kings. It's not something just conferred upon him by God in a kind of sovereign way merely. It is that he himself has the character which... Um, uh, is worthy and which alone is qualified uh, to reign from the throne of God. Here then, in the mockery of these hardened soldiers, um, if there had been a vestige of self-interest, of self-centeredness, of self-love in Christ, it would surely have been exposed. Um, you can do a lot to a person. You can gainsay them. You can contradict them. You can make things difficult for them. But I don't think there's anything like ridicule. That is the final and last thing that a person's self-interest can take. They can take nearly everything else if they're of a noble bent or twist, and there are not too many of us, uh, like that, but ridicule is something <laughs> which we cannot take. Scorn, to be laughed at, to be held up to derision. At that point, many a noble soul has broken, and the self-interest, the self-preservation, uh, the self-centeredness has finally come out into the open. But not Christ. Uh, one would have expected that if it had not been exposed, if there had been any anything like this in him, if it had not been exposed uh, in irritation and anger, it would have been exposed in self-pity. But we find none of it. He wears that crown of thorns as if it is the crown of the universe. And in one sense, it is. Now, don't forget that, even if you don't understand it. Uh, if you reflect upon it, in the end, you'll understand. In one sense, that crown is the crown of the universe. Because Jesus was prepared to go that way, he has been given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When the game was over, when they had finished their mockery, they stripped him of the cloak, dressed him with his own clothes and led him out to his execution. Verse 20. There are two things I would just like to add here. I'm not sure you'll find the first in the notes because I find it so difficult to put it into, into note form. But there's been a very interesting suggestion made more recently on the basis of excavations on the old ancient site of the fortress of Antonia in Jerusalem 
And they've unearthed a huge uh, um, pave, pavement, which is almost certainly the pavement mentioned in John, and found upon certain of the great huge paving stones scratched doodlings of Roman soldiers. And the suggestion has been made uh, that these were, in fact, the games that the soldiers played. Um, and uh, that they used to play a kind of poker um, where someone became king for a day uh, when he won or when finally the lot fell on him and uh, then um, had to go into the gladiator's ring. Uh, so the story goes, uh, the governor lost so many men in the gladiate, gladiatorial ring arena that he forbade the game unless there was a prisoner sentenced to death. If and when there was a prisoner sentenced to death, the battalion, uh, the detachment on duty, would be allowed to have that person play the game and he would stand in for the person, whoever it was. If this is so, and it may well be, it explains the calling together of the whole battalion and would also explain uh, the dressing up as a king, not only because Jesus, the accusation was that Jesus was supposed to be king of the Jews uh, in their eyes, but um, uh, for this game. That's one point. The second thing I want you to notice is the very interesting way in which it says here in verse 20, uh, they put his own clothes on him. Is this an indication of how weak Jesus was? that he was so weakened now that they had to dress him. Then we come to these next verses, verses 21 to 32, which I have entitled the crucifixion. That is technically the crucifixion, the actual crucifixion. How simply and plainly Mark states the fact in verse 24. Uh, and they crucified. And they crucified him. Four words. So simple, so plain. What a universe of meaning. What a universe of untold experience. What fathomless depths of suffering and pain lie behind those four words. And what a universe of love of measureless love and boundless grace lies behind those words. It is surely essential mystery veiled, as it were, by human language. There they crucified. Many people have been crucified. Indeed, uh, 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 later on in the year uh, 66, uh, some 600 people of the best class of Jerusalem, I think, I'm sorry, 3,600 people of the noble class were crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. And later, in 70 AD, Titus crucified so many people uh, that the countryside never recovered. That's where it lost all its trees uh, in the destruction of Jerusalem, simply because they cut down so many trees to crucify people. It was like a forest of trees crucified. 
Oh, many people have been crucified. Many people have suffered. And seemingly, if we're going to take the length of time, we have instances of people who were on the cross for four or five days before they finally died. But you see, it is not the fact of the crucifixion as a physical thing. Behind the simple, plain, unadorned statement lies a universe of untold experience. It is a central mystery, veiled by human language. Uh, I think we ought to note, as I underlined before, uh, the plain, unadorned way in which the whole story of Calvary is recorded. Uh, it is as if Mark, along with the other gospel writers, realizes the impossibility of explaining all that really happened. Uh, for the outward and the seen here is only the indication of what really happened in the unseen and the inward. I think we need continually to keep this in mind where, uh, as we study these <coughs> verses, or we shall miss the way. Crucifixion was a terrible execution. It was originally a Phoenician practice in different forms. It was known all over the ancient world. It was abhorred by the Jews as a cruel Gentile practice. It was the Romans who used crucifixion the most extensively as the means of execution for slaves, provincials, and lower class criminals. Roman citizens were normally beheaded. Amongst Jews, it was only practiced and only allowed to be practiced when the person had been executed. And then, especially for those who'd been stoned to death for idolatry or blasphemy. Um, now, that's why Philippians speaks of even the death of the cross, as if in sort of horrified terms, even, he came right the way down, 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 even to the death of the cross. Originally, just an upright stake upon which a person was tied or impaled, it developed into uh, a cross of three kinds. The T-shaped cross, which is called St. Anthony's Cross, T-shaped. Um, the X-shaped cross, which is called St. Andrew's Cross. And the Latin cross, which is the kind we uh, are more familiar uh, with. Now, it would appear from Matthew 27, verse 37, and Luke 23 and verse 38, that it was this last form of the cross upon which Christ died. Reason? because it says his accusation was nailed above his head. Um, so it would appear that it was the Latin cross, and indeed um, tradition, very ancient tradition, has always associated Christ's death with that particular form of the cross. After the pronouncement of the death sentence, the condemned man was flogged, and then made to carry the crossbeam to the place of execution, always outside the city, where the upright stake 
was already in position. So those pictures you sometimes see of Jesus bearing a huge cross are absolutely wrong. He only, they only ever bore the cross beam. The actual stake was already in position, was often left there, so that different people were often crucified as time went on on the same uh, stake. Um, but it was the cross beam uh, that was uh, carried. Before the condemned man went a herald, bearing a large placard with the accusation clearly written on it or it was hung around the neck of the condemned. Now, the idea was this, that should anyone have any um, uh, uh, evidence which proved that this person had been sentenced wrongly, they could go straight away and get the execution stopped. That was the original idea behind the accusation uh, being written on this placard and being publicly displayed. On arrival at the place of execution, the condemned man was given a kind of anesthetic, uh, a sour wine mixed with uh, myrrh. Uh, this heavily drugged wine was provided by a kind of Jewish women's charity, a kind of WVS uh, or Red Cross. Um, uh, they were on hand for the purpose and it is one thing to be said in favour of jury that it was the only country in the whole of the Middle East where crucifixion was carried out, where women were on hand to help uh, uh, lessen the pain of those being executed. Um, the idea behind this wine mixed with myrrh or gall uh, was, uh, that it was that it should deaden the initial shock and pain. The condemned man was then stripped, made to lie down with arms outstretched on the crossbeam. He was then either tied to it, not always nailed, by the way. When people were crucified, they weren't always nailed. Uh, he was either tied to it or nailed to it through the palms or wrists. Then, by means of ladders and ropes, the crossbeam was lifted up, hauled up, and secured to the upright. The weight of the body was taken by a projecting peg astride which the condemned man sat. His feet were then either tied to the upright or nailed to the upright, and he was about a foot or at the most two foot above the ground. So all these pictures you get of uh, the law being sort of far up there on a cross are quite false. Uh, this explains a whole lot of things uh, in the biblical record. It explains, for instance, why uh, quietly John uh, and Jesus could talk about um, his mother, about the Lord's mother. Um, it explains why uh, uh, other things could happen which were quite quiet um, from uh, the cross. In actual fact, if Christ, we were at the cross here tonight, the Lord's head would be no higher than that. Now that will give you some idea, really, I think it brings home far more the horror of the whole scene um, around the cross, uh, more than anything else uh, can. It also explains why they were able to put a sponge on a hyssop. Hyssop, by the way, is not a very big uh, thing. They put it on a stalk of hyssop and held it up to his lips. Um, that's John 19 and verse uh, 29. 
I think it also brings home to us, as I've said, the horror of what happened around the cross, the joking, the jesting, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the soldiers squatting around, uh, casting dice uh, for the clothes. Um, uh, the condemned man was left to die from exhaustion, dehydration, or hunger. It was a long death, sometimes lasting up to three or more days. Again, uh, jury is to be commended in that it won from the Roman authorities a very great exception in this matter. No person was allowed to remain on a cross overnight. So what they did was they used to go round the before, just before sunset and with a hammer break the legs of the crucified person. This last shock normally resulted in death. Otherwise, they pierced the side with a spear. And then they knew it was over. Normally, four soldiers were, were apportioned to guard each person crucified. Uh, this explains in John uh, 19 and verse 23, um, Again, another little aside on the authenticity of the Bible record. In John 19, verse uh, 23, it says, The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier of a part. Um, uh, there was, it was a law that there were to be four soldiers guarding always, not normally standing to attention. They were often sitting on the ground. Uh, but there were always four to each person uh, crucified. The clothes and any other personal belongings of the condemned went to the soldiers on duty that day. Now, having said all that, we must once again underline the fact that these terrible physical sufferings were not the essential sufferings of Christ, but only the outskirts of his ways. So now we can look again at these verses before we finish this evening. Uh, verse 21. Um, Christ evidently then began slowly and painfully uh, the way from the Praetorium to, to Calvary, bearing the cross beam with the placard uh, and his accusation written on it, either hanging round his own neck or borne uh, before him. Somewhere near to the Praetorium, probably very near to it, he was unable to go on through Syriac sheer exhaustion and collapsed. It was then that the soldiers compelled a certain passerby called Simon to carry the cross beam for Christ. Now, um, why do we say that? Well, because we have a little problem here. If verse 21 says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. If you look at Matthew 27 and verse 32, it says exactly the same um, again, except that it makes it even more definite in this way. It says, 27 verse 32, as they were marching out, they came upon a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. This man they compelled to carry his cross. John uh, says in John 19 and uh, verse 17, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. So it is clear from all the accounts that Jesus went out 
bearing his own cross to start with. And very shortly, very near to the Praetorium, he must have collapsed under uh, the weight of it from sheer exhaustion, and uh, he was relieved of it altogether. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 4 are the best commentary on this, crucified through weakness. Think about that. Crucified through weakness. Compelled. Um, just look at that word compelled. The New American Standard Bible puts it beautifully. Pressed into service. Impressed is really the word. Uh, Luke 23 verse 26 says seized. They seized this man. He was impressed into service. He, he didn't willingly offer himself. It was no voluntary service, this. They just found this passerby, got hold of him. He, I suppose he must have been a quite strong man. Now, tradition, of course, tells us that this, traditionally, he was a Nubian. That is, he was a black man, had a black face. Uh, how lovely that is, that, every, uh, you know, that all of us were, were associated in what happened at the cross. Um, uh, he was impressed into service. He was evidently a Jew, even though he had two sons with beautifully Gentile names, Alexander and Rufus. Um, he had a beautifully Jewish name, uh, Simon. And um, he was evidently a Jew from Cyrene, present-day Libya, where at that time there were many uh, powerful and wealthy Jewish colonies. And he was forced to follow Christ bearing his cross. It's very beautifully put in Luke where it says he carried it behind Jesus. So he literally was forced to follow Christ and bear his cross. From what we can gather, apart from ancient tradition, this unexpected incident changed his whole life. He, it would seem, became a believer and a true follower of Christ. Even if we cannot be certain about that, it appears that his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, became well-known Christians. Uh, some believe that there is a connection between the Rufus and Rufus's mother uh, mentioned by the Apostle Paul in Romans 16 and verse 13. Many believe that there's a connection there between this Rufus and that. When they arrived at Golgotha, they tried to give Christ the drugged wine. But he would not take it. He wished to enter into his supreme service with all his faculties, undrugged and unimpaired. It was about 9 a.m. when they nailed him to the crossbeam and hauled it into position. Above him, the placard with the accusation was nailed. Around him, the hardened soldiers squatted with an eye on his clothes, they divided them into four heaps, cast lots as to who was to get which heap. For his seamless tunic, they cast on a special lot. Crucified with him, one on either side were two criminals. Now, if you look at this verse 22 uh, in Mark uh, 15, um, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, Golgotha, we are told, means skull, but no one quite knows how Golgotha came, uh, how we've got the word Golgotha. Uh, in Hebrew, Golgolet, that means skull today, um, and in Aramaic, Golgalta. Uh, but um, we can only surmise that Golgotha is probably the Greek form of the Aramaic Golgalta. 
Anyway, it certainly to this day, Gulgolet means uh, a skull. It was probably, oh, by the way, the Latin name was Calvary. For those of you from foreign countries um, uh, abroad, uh, you never can understand the English term we use, Calvary. But Calvary is the Latin uh, 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 form of Golgotha. And um, it was probably a roundish hill resembling the top of a skull. Uh, sort of round and flattish. Um, it could possibly be the name given to a place of execution. Um, it must have been outside of the city walls, near a highway and near to a garden in which there was a tomb hewn out of solid rock. All those are points we have in scripture. But we cannot now with certainty say where it is in present-day Jerusalem. There are at least two sites which are shown to pilgrims and um, uh, tourists. Verse 23, the New American Standard uh, Bible rendering is probably the best. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It could be that another reason for his refusal to touch this wine was his promise made at the Last Supper that he would never again touch the fruit of the vine until he drank it with us in glory. Um, Matthew says that he did in fact just taste it, but as soon as he saw that it was drugged, he refused to uh, uh, drink it. Another point about these verses, Luke alone records that it was whilst those cruel nails were being hammered through his hands that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, the grace and the love and the compassion of Christ expressed at a time when no love and no compassion were shown toward him at all. Paul's words in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, are again the best commentary on this. God commendeth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, the words of Christ, they know not what they do, could be written over all that transpired from his trial to his uh, execution. <coughs> they know not what they do. Verse 24, divided, um, they divided his garments, doesn't mean they tore them, it means literally they shared them out. John gives us a fuller account of this, he said that they divided these clothes into four piles or heaps, um, and it would appear uh, from all the accounts taken together that they first parted the clothes into four uh, piles and cast lots as to who would get which pile and then they cast lots for the most precious garment of all the seamless tunic. Now there is a problem there. Some people say, well, they didn't want to tear that so surely they'd torn the other things. Um, but of course they couldn't put the one garment into four. That's the point and it was more costly than all the other garments put together. Verse 26, Mark's version of the accusation is the simplest version of the four Gospels. The king of the Jews, just like Mark's Gospel, plain, simple, uh, direct. The king of the Jews. It was evidently written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so John and Luke tell us. If we take all four Gospels, we find the full accusation, this is Jesus of Nazareth, 
the king of the Jews. It's no wonder that the temple authorities went to Pilate about the wording. It was, after all, hardly an accusation. It was more a declaration. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Where's the accusation in this? It's even more interesting that they asked him to change it to, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Now that's an accusation. This man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate would not touch it. And it was left nailed above the head of the Lord Jesus Christ as a declaration of fact. Maybe Pilate didn't quite see it as a declaration of that, but it was a declaration of that. The, the king of the Jews. Christ made that cross his throne. From the tree he reigned. No one really understood it at the time, and I don't think that many people understand it even today, even those who are Christians. To this day, and to all eternity, Christ bears in his hands and in his feet the marks inflicted upon him at Calvary. Uh, the lamb, we're told, as it had been slain, standing in the midst of the throne. Jesus has made the altar the throne. As that wonderful vision of the water pouring out of the altar in the house of God in Ezekiel 47, verse 1, with the tree of life on either side and for the healing of the nations. And if you turn right over to Revelation 22, you've got the same river pouring out with the, river, with the tree of life on either side of the healing of the nations. And the wonderful thing is that the altar has become the throne. And that's exactly what Jesus made of the cross. He <coughs> made the altar the throne. And many Christians try to substitute the cross for the throne. You can't do it. In the end, the cross becomes the throne. Now, what do we mean by that? Simply this. Christ is alone worthy to take the throne because of his character. Uh, uh, though tempted in all points, such as we are, he remained without sin, without spot, without blemish. Even when tried to the utmost degree by evil, hardened men, ill-treated, despised, rejected, hated, murdered, he remains not merely sinless and pure, uncompromised, but he is full of grace and truth. It was uncompromised and uncompromising truth that was crucified. It was boundless and measureless love uh, that they nailed to the tree. Because God is, such character must win. There could not be a God if he allowed such a character to be destroyed. It must win. And with such character reigning from the throne, eternity is absolutely secure. Furthermore, Christ is alone worthy to take the throne because of the utter and absolute sacrifice of himself <coughs> for such worthless insig and insignificant uh, and evil people such as you and me. We see the real nature of kingship uh, in the mind of God when we look at Christ on the cross. God's idea 
in kingship is not pomp and it isn't personal power and it's not just being able to attract attention. God's mind in kingship is service and sacrifice. Now, could the purpose of God be in safer hands? I don't think so. So I say really that this cross, um, uh, Christ made the cross, the altar, the throne of God, and that's the only way you and I can come to the throne of God. We have to come the same way. Uh, you will notice that verse 28 uh, this verse is not included in the text of the Revised Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New English Bible, and the New American Standard Bible, but it is included in the margin or in the footnotes of all of them. Now, that's simply because it is not found in many of the oldest manuscripts. However, it makes no difference, uh, in one sense, to the truth of the verse. <laughs> he was numbered amongst the transgressors, and no one can argue with that. Um, it is, we all know that what happened to him there, being crucified with a criminal on either side, was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. So Christ began his supreme work, the Lamb of God, bearing away the sin of the world. We can only watch with bound and wandering uh, hearts, conscious that we see only a tiny fragment of the real story. Outwardly, it was as if all hell had been let loose. Passers-by were blaspheming him, hurling abuse at him, jeeringly shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! They would say, so you could destroy the temple and build it up again in three days? Why not come down from the cross and save yourself? Chief priests, in fine humor, joking to one another with the scribes, among themselves, he saved others. Himself, he cannot save. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even the two criminals crucified with him kept on reviling him, pouring insults upon him. Note in verse 29, railed on him, in your authorized version or revised version, it's a strong word, and it's in the imperfect tense, were blaspheming him, kept on blaspheming him, were hurling abuse at him, is the New American Standard Bible and the New English Bible version. And then again in verse 31, mocking, literally jesting, joking. Uh, it, it's a terrible picture, really, we have of these chief priests, uh, uh, just joking and jesting uh, about what was happening. Matthew supplies us with a fuller ac account of what these passers-by said and the chief priests were saying. Um, uh, in Matthew 27, verses 40 and 43, Luke informs us that not all the people joined in the mockery. In fact, he says that many of the people was, were watching, but the rulers scoffed. There's nothing in this world so satanic as religious formalism and religious traditionalism uh, without God. In these representatives of God, these 
priests of the Most High, these servants of the Lord, these exponents and interpreters of the law and the word of God, we see nothing of the heart and character of God at all. There's no sympathy, no kindness, no mercy, no compassion. They stand around the dying Christ, joking and jesting. For them, he and all he stood for was a threat, and they were relieved to think that at last they had destroyed him. Their relief is seen in their cruel fun and jesting uh, among themselves. They not only show no compassion, they jeeringly taunt him. To such depths of evil, religion can sink. We have had much in the history of the church of just such instances. God preserve us from formalism and traditionalism without God. There can be no doubt that they were supremely satisfied that the crucifixion of Christ would put an end once and for all to the claim that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, and would expose publicly his falsity. In verse 32, also note the word reproached. Uh, it says the two criminals also in your older version reproached him. Again, it's in the imperfect tense. Were reviling him is best. Evidently, at some point, one of the two criminals stopped reviling Christ, silenced as light began to dawn on him. We have that account in Luke, not in Mark. In Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. It's quite clear that he became the first one saved um, under the new covenant. And it's also interesting to note how much he saw in those moments. I've often thought about this, and if you just want to turn to it, in Luke 23 and verse um, um, 40, I think it is, 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. I've often thought about this. Do you know that you can go to a theological seminary and you can study for six years and not see what that man saw in one single instant on the cross? <laughs> it's amazing. Spiritual revelation is spiritual revelation. It can happen in an instant. In an instant. People then sometimes say, well, then why preach? Why, 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 why go on? I mean, you know very well you're just stuffing it into their heads. But it comes. The point is it comes. There comes a point when suddenly what we know up here comes into our heart. And it can happen in a single instant of time to spiritual illumination. We all began that way. That's how we got saved. You can preach till you're blue in the face of someone at the gospel and nothing happens. And all of a sudden they see. And they're in. Don't see everything. But they see something and it's happened see it in them. I, I've always been amazed about this dying thief because obviously he'd never been to a theological seminary, never been trained under some rabbi. He was a social outcast. He was just nothing. And yet he says, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. Now he obviously knew that that kingdom was not an earthly kingdom. Yet all those disciples who'd been with Jesus for three years had the closest proximity to him, had heard the most wonderful messages, seen the most amazing miracles. Not one of them had even seen that the kingdom was a spiritual thing. And indeed, when Jesus reappeared to them, the very first thing they said to him was, tell us when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Amazing, isn't it? And yet this man dying on the cross in an instant 
saw that the, what the kingdom of God was. He saw the nature of the kingdom of God. And he said, remember me, Jesus, when thou comest in thy kingdom. What a statement of faith. When thou comest in thy kingdom. Not if you come in your kingdom. That wouldn't have been any faith. That's how often we would put it. If it happens, Lord, just remember us. But when thou comest in thy kingdom. Remember me, Jesus, when thou comest in thy kingdom. In an instant it had happened. How wonderful. It is perhaps very, very moving uh, to think that when Jesus went into paradise, at his side was this criminal, saved by the grace of God. No great saint went in with him. No great, wonderful person, but a criminal. He had no life to give to God. He couldn't become a great apostle. Couldn't lay down his life, as it were, for others. He had just minutes of really hours left of his life. But in that instant, something happened. And by the grace of God, he was the first one into the kingdom. A saved criminal. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Verse 32, that we might see and believe. They said, let this Messiah, let this, um, this king of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. A refrain, I'm afraid, we have often heard, but never said from honesty. Um, as the case here. Oh, how many times people have said to us, show me. Show me. Um... Never said from honesty. Who has ever physically seen and believed? Tell me. Who has ever physically seen and believed? Even outstanding miracles do not convert a person necessarily. A miracle is a sign. And it can arrest a person. And if they are toward God, they see. They believe and they see. But the miracle itself never saves anyone. We believe and see. Said I not unto thee that if thou believest thou shouldest see the glory of God. It's proved of course in the same thing. They said let the Christ come down from the cross. Ah that we may see and believe. Christ did not come down from the cross. But Christ did arise from the grave. <laughs> and they did not believe. Indeed, Matthew tells us that they paid the guards to go and spread a story that the disciples had come uh, while they were asleep and stolen the body. Isn't that interesting? Oh, if he comes down from the cross, we'll, we, we'll see and we'll believe. Never. He arose from the dead. A greater miracle than even coming down from the cross. And still they didn't believe. And lastly... Uh, in, in this whole matter of uh, the mockery, none of them hurling abuse at him had any real understanding of what was happening. In a very real sense, Christ could not build the temple of God and save himself. They said, you who will destroy the temple and build it up again in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross and save yourself. 
but in a very real sense, Christ could not build the true temple of God and save himself. He could not save others and save himself. He could not be the king of Israel, the, redeem, the redemption of Israel, the glory of thy people Israel, and come down from the cross to build the temple of God, to save others, to open the kingdom of God, to fallen man, to redeem us, to give us the glory of God, he had to sacrifice himself, to die for our sins. Without their even knowing it, he was laying a foundation upon which even those chief priests, those scribes, those hardened soldiers, those jeering passers-by, could be saved to the uttermost if they would only repent and believe. Like the dying criminal, the dying thief, he could have saved every one of them. By staying on the cross, he was laying a foundation by which all who believe can be saved. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we commit thee, this study into thy hands. Uh, Lord, we pray indeed that thou wilt really take these things which are fundamental uh, aspects, Lord, of the gospel we believe and preach. Lord, we pray that thou wilt take it and reveal it to us by thy spirit. Oh, make these things live to us, Lord. We commit ourselves now to thee, Lord. We need thee. We need thee greatly. And, Lord, thou art the only one who canst come and, as it were, unveil something of thyself to every one of us. Oh, touch the hardness, Lord, in any one of our hearts. Melt us, we pray, before thee. And may we become those who, Lord, are not always looking at one another, but who see ourselves in seeing thee. And, Lord, are saved from ourselves in seeing and trusting thee. So, Lord, we commit now this time to thee in thy name. Amen.